When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Eugenio Duarte, your host for New Books in Psychology. I want to hear what you think. If you enjoy what you hear or have an idea for an author you'd like to hear on the show, let me know. You can find me on Instagram using the handle Eugenio Duarte PhD or go to my website www.eugenioduartephd.com and click on the contact tab to send me a message. There, you can also learn more about me as well as my clinical practice. For now, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast, New Books in Psychology, a channel of the New Books Network. I am Eugenio Duarte, your host, as well as a practicing psychoanalyst and clinical psychologist in Miami. Today, my guest is Julie Lithcott-Hames, She's here today to speak with me about her new book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, published in 2021 by Henry Holt and Company. I'd like to tell you a little bit about my guest. Julie Lithcott-Hames is the New York Times bestselling author of the Anti-Helicopter Parenting Manifesto, How to Raise an Adult, which gave rise to a popular TED Talk. Her second book is a critically acclaimed and award-winning prose poetry memoir, Real American which illustrates her experience as a black and biracial person in white spaces. Her latest book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, has been called a, quote, groundbreakingly frank, end quote, guide to adulthood. Julie is a former corporate lawyer and Stanford dean, and she holds a BA from Stanford, a JD from Harvard, and an MFA in writing from California College of the Arts. She currently serves on the boards of Common Sense Media and the Black Women's Health Imperative, and on the advisory board of leanin.org and Parents Magazine. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her partner of over 30 years, their itinerant young adults, and her mother. Julie, welcome to the show. Hey, Eugenio. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be with you and your listeners today. Thank you. I, I watched your TED Talk in preparation for this interview, in addition to reading your book, and you put forth your point of view on parenting as a means for building children's self-efficacy rather than getting them to realize the parent's own vision of success. 
how did you come to realize these truths in your own life? Mm, talk about going for the jugular right off the bat here. Ah, um, how did I come to realize these truths in my own life? I guess I will put it this way. Um, my parents didn't force me down a particular path of life. There were very high expectations. I came from a very well-educated family and it was clear to me that I needed to go to college and that was expected and that I needed to, you know, be successful in life, but they weren't, uh, forcing me down a particular path. Um, what I did end up doing, uh, was going to law school. I went to law school to help people, um, the marginalized, those who needed an advocate, those underserved in society, discriminated against, but I was in my mid twenties and I was a young woman of color. I I'm now an older woman of color, but I was young. And as a woman of color who was young in an elite white environment, I, I headed toward the type of law that I saw valued and validated in my law school community, which was corporate law. And, um, so I, I pursued a profession to meet other people's approval is what I'm trying to say. Not, because my family expected it, but because I was trying to make it in the eyes of white society to be validated by them, to never be called the N word again, basically. I mean, this I now know was motivating much of my behaviors, um, trying to please and appease. And it was in the misery that I experienced well-paid, successful, being mentored and given opportunity, though I was, I was nevertheless feeling in my body a deep discomfort, a misery over the work that I had chosen to do. And it was that deep discomfort and misery that made me appreciate, no, this is not what I want out of my life. I I have talents and skills and dreams and I know who I am and how I want to show up on the planet. And I think I can find work doing the things that I know to be good and true and, and united with my own values. And I am going to switch from this quote, successful track as a corporate lawyer over to doing work that better aligns my skills with my values. And, you know, I think it was in that experience that I, for the first time realized there's what other people want, or there's the journey toward meeting other people's expectations and there's the journey toward being able to look myself in the mirror and feel satisfied and good about uh, the choices I have made. So given that you made that switch in your adult life, uh, ostensibly away from something that is highly valued, um, highly approved of, how does that shape the way that you define now what it means to be an adult? I think it made clear to me that um, one's life as an adult is not richly rewarding and meaningful if all you're doing is trying to meet other people's approval. I think it was um, an experience that allowed me then to go toward um, higher ed administration, a career that I had for 14 years. I was a dean at Stanford. I worked with young people and I was determined in that role to try to have the kinds of conversations with young people that would turn them on to the fact that their own thoughts and plans and dreams and fears were the most valid data uh, 
to be used to forge a life with. And so I would say it's deeply connected. My my own experience led to this, you know, new work as an academic, uh, as an as a university administrator, which led to book one, which led to book three. I'm trying to put on the page. Um, the lessons that were embedded in my conversations with students, which were themselves lessons I had learned from um, having sought other people's approval uh, way too much and way too often. So your book is about how to be an adult, as is evident in the subtitle, but who is this book for? Is it for parents, for kids? Yeah. Is it is it for people who are already ostensibly adults? Well, all of these, uh, first of all, what is an adult? What age is one an adult at any longer? These definitions have changed. All of these terms are in some ways moving targets. Um, I will say this. The millennial generation some years ago, Eugenio, began saying, I don't want to adult. I'm scared to adult. Adulting is hard. And this is me as a Gen Xer saying, I get you. I care about you. It's valid what you're going through, your fears, your worries, your uncertainties. Let me try to validate that, hold space for that, and sit next to you, metaphorically, as an author on the page with you. Let me journey with you forward because you got to move forward. Because to be stuck in this limbo of, well, I'm not a kid anymore, but I'm terrified of adulting, that's not a, that stuckedness is not healthy, as you well know, um, given that you're a psychotherapist, psychoanalyst. Um, so um, it's in response to them. So who are they? They are millennials, are, you know, I don't know, 20 to 36 right now, or roughly speaking. It's for them. We've pitched the book at 18 to 34, frankly. However, older people are also reading it. And they're saying in their 40s or 50s, 60s and 70s, I feel like you wrote this book for me. They're saying, I wish I'd had it when I was younger. They're saying, I need it now. They're saying this book is like a mirror showing me what I need to see about myself on my journey. So in that sense, Eugenio, I feel that the book is simply, in fact, holding a mirror up saying, you're not a child anymore. If you're reading this book, you are more or less responsible for yourself, which is my definition of adulting. And it's showing you whatever it is you need to see based on where you are in your journey right now. It's for all of us. It's for all of us who have made it out of childhood alive and want to make the most of our adult years. I mean, I'm thinking about what you said about encountering students at the university who who were scared to adult. And I mean, we all encounter this. We, we all hear this. We see it on Instagram that, it, that adulting, first of all, as you say in the book, it's become a verb. It wasn't a verb when we first entered into adulthood, but it is now. And, right. and folks are scared of it. Do I mean, do you think that that's because the nature of being an adult has changed over over the generations? Absolutely. I think a number of things have, have conspired to make this fear of adulting true um, in no particular order. Macroeconomically, it is much more... It's a, it's a hostile environment in which to be a young adult in many cities today. That is what it takes to pay for a one-bedroom apartment is um, 
not commensurate with what one earns in a minimum wage job. So many people can't afford to live on their own, which was not the case going back and back and back. Okay. So macroeconomic things, plus they're more likely to have student loan debt. So their salary hasn't kept up with cost of living and they've got more debt. So as a matter of economic reality, it's harder to adult embedded in which is look after yourself, be responsible for yourself. How are you supposed to do that if the money doesn't add up? Um, I think also in many families, there was a lot of handholding and micromanaging of children in childhood. That's the subject of my first book, How to Raise an Adult, which definitely undermines one when one is emerging out into adulthood. If your parents have handled, fixed, managed, planned everything, you've been deprived of the very experiences along the way in childhood and adolescence that would have made getting that first apartment a little easier talking to the landlord, filling out the forms, searching for it in the first place would have made getting the first job a little bit easier because you'd already filled out forms and, and, you know, applied for things and so on. Um, so for folks who've been raised that way, they definitely are uh, a bit hampered when they're now unleashed out into the adult world and expected to do for themselves. Um, and I think there's this wide open flexibility and freedom, um, around adulting these days, um, that is both liberating and terrifying. What I mean is the traditional definition of adult was uh, you finish school, leave home, marry. Let, let me get the order right. Finish school, get a job, leave home, marry and have children. This harkens back to an era where women were the property of their dads and then they became the property of their husbands. And if woe you know, befall them, they didn't have a husband, they were a spinster, they were, you know, put on the margins of society, it was a presumption that everybody was straight, and would marry and have children. I mean, that those were your options, they weren't really options. We have discarded much of those expectations, marry if you want to, you know, have kids if you want to slash can, if that's your thing, those things aren't mutually, um, exclusive anymore. Uh, one doesn't require the other, necessitate the other. Um, and so there's freedom. And it's like, you do you, figure it out. But I think with all that freedom, it is a little terrifying. There isn't this lockstep five set of things you have to do and ta-da, you're an adult. So this is where we have to ask, well, well, how do we craft this adult life? And I think it's about intentionally interacting with other humans, creating community, creating chosen family, um, having the rituals and life experiences that will uh, tell you that, yes, you're a grown up. Yes, you are making your way. Um, the 21st century is a very different reality. And, you know, aspects of it are a little terrifying, but I think they are navigable. You know, I was struck by how you set the tone in the opening of the book, a tone which I think matches that of your TED Talk. And yeah. it, for me, it's a tone that emphasizes the centrality of our interconnectedness, that mm. being an adult is not a, about or not only about fending for yourself and achieving success on your own, although you go into, you talk about fending in the book, yeah. but that being an, an adult is also about how you support and are supported by others. So first of all, let me know if I'm reading you correctly. And if so, how did you come to view adult in this adulthood in this way? I think you are reading me correctly. Um, my undergraduate degree was American studies. I've been deeply interested in our society and in how and where and when we thrive and when we don't. Um, you know, I then pursued law. I then pursued writing. I am, I am, I feel that I'm a student of 
humans. I'm deeply interested in in all of us. When I interact with humans, I I try to listen very well. I try to pay attention to what's being said and not said, what's conveyed in body language and tone and actual language. I'm just very curious about all of us, not in a prying um, way, not in a, in a, um, you know, uh, not in a prying way. I'm searching for the right word. I can't find it, but more out of curiosity to support. Um, And I've read enough over the years about the importance of human relationships to know that our relationships with one another really do form that backbone or really do form that safety net. Um, there's a beautiful book out fairly recently on the, on friendship um, and on how research demonstrates that it's the quality of our relationships with our loved ones and closest friends at 50 that determines whether that predicts whether we'll live a long, healthy life far more than our cholesterol level at 50 you know, it's humans. It's knowing we have one another, knowing we have someone we can call in the middle of the night, um, knowing we are relied upon by others just as we rely on others. Um, it's not that everybody has to matter to everybody, but each of us needs some small subset of someones who do. And I think what I'm trying to say is I intuited that in my own life. Um, I began to practice that in my way of interacting with humans. And then I have read enough of other people's research and other people's narratives on top of research uh, saying it so. So um, all of that reinforces my way of trying to be with humans. I mean, this book is fundamentally me saying, I'm not, as you've noted at the outset, I say, I'm not an expert. You know, I do not have a PhD in adulting. I'm not going to cite the research that says why you need to learn to fend for yourself. You know, I am here, compassionate, older, shining a warm light on my readers, not a scary neon light, not a blinking, you know, red light, but a warm light based on my lived experience. It's like, look, I care about you. I've learned a lot. I'd like your way to be made easier because of what I have learned on my journey. That's what I think the the voice of this book is aiming for. But I think a, a lot of people were raised to believe that being an adult means being on your own and figuring things out on your own. And certainly I think you're, you're saying in your book, that's part of being an adult. But I, I know I have patients and I'm sure you know people who the, their biggest Achilles heel is not learning how to fend for themselves as adults, but learning how to depend on others. You, you mentioned in the book, the, the story of the guy who came into your office and, and said, this is, this is my plan for the next 20 years. I'm going to graduate at this, at this age and go to med school. And he had this idea that everyone else was just an object that was going to cooperate with him. How do you teach people like that who are, are very good at fending for themselves. How, how do you teach them how to rely on others and not feel ashamed or not feel inferior? Mm. We do have this rugged individualism ethos in the United States, and we're seeing a lot of that now showing up in response to the virus and to public health mandates and vaccination uh, requests and requirements. We're seeing a lot of people say, don't tell me what to do. I'm here to live my own life. I don't need you people, you know, all of that. And there is a, um, you know, the, the image of the cowboy, the white man riding across the plains on his horse, doing whatever the hell he wanted comes to mind. And, um, and I think we've seen 
the harm of completely going it alone when somebody is completely off the grid and completely, you know, just only cares about themselves. Um, they are rejecting the notion of belonging to a society, to a democracy. Um, so I think where I come from is, yeah, you want to be enough of a rugged individualist such that you're not depending on others to meet your basic needs. I mean, in childhood, others are meeting your needs, assuming you have parents who can and will. And then adulting is the flip of that. You are more or less now responsible for yourself. And that means you can take care of the basics that you wake up knowing it's on me. I'm responsible. Okay. It's not expecting to just be caretaken constantly, unless you have a significant medical need or disability of some kind. Okay. But then there's the balance of, oh, and we're a social species. We live longer when we cooperate with each other, when we're able to ask people for advice and guidance, help, um, when we're able to offer that to others in return, it's good for us. It's good for us psychologically. It's, it's not just kind to be of use to others or kind to ask others for their advice and expertise. It's actually psychologically beneficial to us. And so I think what we're trying to do is be purveyors of both, you know, personal responsibility, accountability, basic fending, and you are in a species that is highly social and we are meant to be in community with each other. It's how we've evolved to this point is through cooperation and uh, and that if you're going to cooperate with others, you have to take their needs into account. You have to care about what matters to them. You have to learn how to communicate and, um, you know, how to... Um, you know, how to get your needs met and their needs met. So for me, it's a, it's a both and approach, a little bit of that individual who knows, yep, it's on me. I shouldn't expect others to handle stuff for me all the time. Oh, but sometimes I will need help and I, and I should, um, seek out help and guidance and advice. And I should also be very ready and willing to stand up and and support others, uh, when they need something from me. I I want, I want to, talk about one of your creative choices in this book to include stories from a broad range of people. And I think it's really effective because you punctuate your chapters with these anecdotes of real people that you've interacted with and how they have faced certain obstacles in their adulthood. Can you, can you tell us why you decided to do that? Absolutely. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Um, Number one, as a matter of craft and as a matter of learning styles, I respect the fact that some people want bulleted lists of how to fend for themselves or how to look after themselves in a self-care sense or you know, how to behave in the workplace, but other people learn through story. Storytelling is how humans have taught humans how to be human (laughs) since we had language. And so I wanted to try to put some good storytelling in these pages because some people will really take the lessons out of the stories. Um, And in terms of my choices for whom to um, approach around storytelling, I knew that I wanted to write a nonfiction self-help book that truly is for everybody. Meaning if you're queer, you open this book, you see there are queer people and you're like, okay, she had me in mind. If you're straight, you see straight people like she had me in mind. If you're white, if you're black, if you're Asian, if you're Latino, if you're native, if you're poor, if you're rich, if you're highly educated, if you're hardly educated, if you have depression, if you have social anxiety, if you're on the spectrum, if you're neurodivergent, etc. If you are trans, you know, I put 
all kinds of folks in the book to signal to readers, I'm trying to have you in mind as I write this book for all. Um, It was an effort worth doing. I thought an important effort. I think also, Eugenio, I'm trying to say, look how different we are. Look at these myriad lives lived in all different ways. And yet, look how much we have in common. This is a book born in 2021 saying, yes, all lives should matter. And in order for all lives to matter, we have to do a much, much better job of putting particularly those who have traditionally been marginalized into the center of the page. So I'm trying to achieve all of that with this storytelling. And and I think you do. And I mean, I'm wondering, as you wrote these stories, as you collected them and, and thought about them, did you did, did any differences stand out to you? I mean, did you find that how different groups or different races or cultures or people, different kinds of experiences that they conceive of adulthood differently or that they face different kind of challenges when they enter adulthood? I think I found more commonalities than differences. You know, there were stories that reinforced a stereotype like, a Korean American male talking about how much pressure his Korean parents were putting on him to pursue a particular path. But he's in there not because of that particular stereotype that he and his family may reinforce to some extent, but rather because he comes to term with ter- terms with the fact that what his parents want for him professionally is not what he wants. And he completely changes course. So he becomes that individual very respecting of his heritage and culture and loving his family. Who's able to stand up and say, guess what? I don't actually want to do this. I'm not sure what it is. I want to do. I need some time to figure it out. And ultimately he pivoted. Um, you know, the commonalities that come to mind are, um, there are at least two people in here who were or slash are still highly estranged from family. Um, One, because he's Hindu and queer and his parents won't have it, don't get it, don't like it, won't accept him. And he's a doctor. He's everything they wanted him to be academically, but he just happens to be gay and they can't make, they won't accept it. And then there's a guy who's a straight white male from Texas who wants to go into theater and his, very wealthy father won't allow it. And both of these men become who they know they are. The queer doctor in Chicago, whose parents after 10 years finally come around, which is beautiful as a reconciliation, but he's juxtaposed with Joe in Texas, who's, you know, pursued his passion theater and is estranged and maybe forever estranged from a father who will not accept that career choice. And um, so, and, and I said, he's a straight white male. He's also, I think, I don't know his, his religion, but anyway, so these two guys are very different looking and yet they're both dealing with fathers in particular who just refused um, to accept the sons for who they were. And that heartache, that common experience is what I want people to know exists across the very, the various dimensions that somehow divide us. You know, we all long to be loved and accepted and cherished as we are. 
And I think that's one of the dominant messages of the book is you have the right to be loved and accepted and cherished as you are. And you got to go find yourself in the workplace and neighborhood and community and relationship with people who will love and accept you as you are. And if people who are supposed to love you the most won't to hell with them, it's your life. You know, one of the things I enjoyed the most about your book is how personal you get and how vulnerable you are. And there are points where you even say, I I can't believe I'm writing this. Um, And you share the story of what happened when you and your husband were in your mid twenties and packing up to move from Boston to California. And you got that call saying that there had, there had been a fire with your moving truck. And you say that that was a moment you realized you were an adult because you also realized in that moment, your parents were not going to take care of this for you. Nobody was going to come and save you and, and, and handle this for you, you, you had to handle it. And, and that's how you knew. But I wonder how, how does someone know whether they're having that moment? Some people may not be so open to such a realization. So how do you advise people who are maybe getting the signs from life that it's time for them to take on responsibility for themselves, but they're not hearing it? How, what advice do you have for them? The first thing I got to say, Eugenio, is look, my story is evidence of tremendous privilege. Here I was, you know, 26 or whatever, and had a fire in my moving truck and feel like that's my adulting moment. It doesn't mean I wasn't adulting before that, but it was just sort of super clear to me then. Um, And if I'd been born poor or working class, if I'd had to work straight out of high school instead of having had the privilege of my parents paying for me to go to college, I would have probably had my own, oh no, I've got to handle this adulting moments far younger in life. So I just want to acknowledge my socioeconomic privilege, which is embedded in that story. Um, I would say this, you, if your impulse is when you have a fire in your moving truck or your car breaks down at the side of the road, or um, you get fired from your job and your first impulse is to ask your parents to handle it for you, to text them and say, this happened and just drop it in their lap, that is not adulting. Okay. That is behaving as a dependent child, expecting someone else to handle it. Okay. It's not that you shouldn't go to them for advice and guidance, but what we want you to be doing is saying, Oh shit, this is my stuff. I'm sorry. I'm swearing on your podcast. This is some stuff I've, that has happened to me or a bind I have gotten myself into, whether you did it or it happened to you, it's yours. And you want to sit with it and say, all right, this has happened. Damn. <sighs> Great. How did it happen? What are my options? Bring it within your own psyche for a moment or two or maybe 10 minutes. Think it through and then reach out to parents, trusted others, friends, and say, all right, y'all, I need some guidance. This has happened. These are my thoughts you know, what are your thoughts in response to what I'm sharing? You do not presume that other people know better than you about your own situation or should be the ones primarily responsible for, you know, getting out of this particular mess and back on track. That's adulting. Now, people who are interested should go go out and get the book because your book really covers a swath of, um, of topics, money, identity, grief, loss. I wanted to ask you though, if, if, if we take it 
as a given that we're always continually revisiting and relearning the lessons contained in your book. You know, if, if we take for granted that you and I, we're always relearning how yeah. to be an adult. Um, in your own life, what are the lessons from your book that you keep coming back to and relearning? Yeah. A um, couple things come to mind. First, chapter nine, as you know, is called Take Good Care of Yourself. This is my take on self-care well beyond the Instagrammable self-care moments. This is really about the behaviors you want to be regularly um, embodying in order to be looking after that mind and body. And um, I'm putting all this advice on the page about know your situation, whether it's a diagnosis or not, a condition, a disease, a difference, a challenge, know it and love yourself in it and take care of what that aspect of yourself needs, whether it's therapy or psychiatry or meds or, you know, whatever. And I realized, Eugenio, I've been ignoring my own medical health needs because I'm afraid to go to a doctor because you know, I had a doctor judge me about my weight many, many pounds ago when I was a lot lighter than I am now. I had a doctor you know, I was seeing for bronchitis tell me that I weighed too much. And uh, it made me afraid to go to doctors for decades. And I would go when I had to, but I just mean I wasn't in a kind of a wellness practice mindset. And I thought, here I am putting this advice on the page for readers. I got to take my own advice. I got to. And so that's been a huge gift of writing this book for others. I, in the pandemic, finally went to my primary care doctor who hadn't seen for a couple of years to look at things like my blood sugar, which had been on the rise, to look at things like, you know, my metabolic issues and whatnot. Just turned out I have sleep apnea. You know, I did a sleep study and now I, I have a CPAP mask that is changing my life um, because I'm no longer gasping for air in the middle of the night. And I never would have gone to that or I wouldn't have gotten to this point in my journey this quickly uh, had I not written this book trying to help other people lead healthier lives. The other thing is I come to terms with a lot of my own parenting stuff throughout my re my writing. And on the pages of this book is a aha moment with my son, now 22, when he came home after two years of college, really kind of spiraling out due to ADHD and anxiety and the resulting senses of shame and I can't and so on that, that, that attended the various things that were going wrong. That was when my husband and I finally read the books on anxiety and ADHD even though our son had had this diagnosis in the fourth grade, he was just so capable and smart. We thought that they really were not a thing. And I'm saying this bluntly. I'm not proud of this. I'm just trying to be super clear. We failed to see our son for who he was and what he needed until he was in crisis. And we read the books and he came home and he saw the books flagged up on our desk. And he looked at me and he put a smile on his face and his hand on my shoulder. And he said, mom, I saw the books. Thank you for taking an interest in understanding who I am. And it broke my heart that this child had to say this, but he said it with such grace. And I looked at and I have tears in my voice, as you can hear, I had tears in my eyes at the time. And I said, Sawyer, I'm so sorry it has taken us this long. We want to be the parents you deserve. So I retold that story in the pages of your turn for the sake of any reader who might have a situation, diagnosis, challenge around which they are not well enough seen by family. And I say in the book, flag this page if you need someone else to read this story. It's me 
not just advocating for my son to have what he needs, but for any reader who might be in a similar situation, I'm trying to now be the parent who knows better, who is offering a way forward to a younger person who hopes that their own parents will uh, be able to better see and understand their struggle. But, but first of all, I want to say that's yeah. so real, what you're sharing. And, and so, so by real, yeah. I mean relatable, yeah. right? I mean, by, by your own conception of adulthood adulthood is this it's it's making mistakes realizing the mistakes owning up to them um and and forgiving ourselves right i mean would you you agree uh we are flawed we make mistakes that's human the point is we're supposed to not be ashamed and hide and shrink from that but try to dare to face it try to dare to tell the truth of it to ourselves and to whomever else needs to hear it so that we can learn from it and recover from it and be stronger for the next time. So next time we can say, you know what, I'm not going to make that mistake again. Right. Right. Uh, Julie, we're almost out of time, but before we finish, I wanted to know what you're up to these days. Well, we're speaking in the summer and I am um, enjoying the fact that summer is a time when I do less public speaking. I speak for a living. I'm grateful for that work, but it tends to be uh, school year based. So now I'm reading more. I'm working on a book proposal for my fourth book, which I hope I'll get a book deal for. It's going to be a mother-daughter memoir about uh, co-written with my own 82-year-old mother. We chose to move into a home together 20 years ago in order to get our kids to the so-called best public schools. Uh, we couldn't afford it without her. And she also was you know, looking f- for some things that she could get if she moved, if, if she bought a house with us. So that's been hard and wonderful, and hard. And we're trying to write a book about it to help others. I do believe you write memoir to be of service. So I hope this memoir will be of service to anybody contemplating moving back in with their adult child or moving back in with a parent when you are an adult, um, because it is challenging, but also the rewards are, are, of course, tremendous as well. So that's I'm working on that book proposal and uh, just doing a lot of reading in preparation for writing that book. And in preparation for a memoir class, I'm going to be teaching this fall. I, you know, thank you for sharing that. Um, something that I, I had thought I might share with you and we didn't get around to, but I will now, is that I, I can relate very much to your experience. Um, so I moved in with my mother four years ago. She was diagnosed with dementia, early Sorry. onset dementia. And... You know, and it, it came to mind for me when you were describing your, you know, your moment of realizing you were an adult, you know, with, with the moving thing, that, that mine was, was, was probably when she was diagnosed and, and she, you know, it's not, was not married and I was the ostensibly more uh, capable, you know, or well-positioned sibling to be able to do this. And I, I, I related very much to your story because I realized, oh shit, this, this, yeah it's, it's on me now. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a right. caretaker now. And I have, I don't know how I'm going to figure this out, uh. but I need to figure this out. Um, and, and so a lot of what you were talking about really resonated for me. Um, but this is why I, I, I find it as well, quite compassionate for you to emphasize the importance of our yeah. interdependence, because I think if what I suffer from is thinking not only that I'm the, that I have to do things on my own. And I don't know if you relate to this, but also that, well, I'm the only one who knows how to get it done mm. correctly. And so let, let yeah. me do it. Um, so, so I think this is uh, a book that 
many people I hope will feel touched by. Eugenio, I'm sorry that your mother is suffering. She's still alive. You're still with her, right? You're her caretaker. Yes. And it strikes, and and this happened when you were, I can't tell how old you are, but you're not a kid. (laughs) So, no, no, you're 40, right? So you sort of realize in your mid to late thirties with your mother's diagnosis, like crap, we're the adults. I guess it's me, right? It's on me now. All of, you know, when we move, if, if our parents uh, enter that phase of life, which many do, um, there does come a point when the roles really do reverse and it's almost like we are their parent now, or we're the one who's the elder in the sense of can make the better decisions, can be more responsible, can do the caretaking and the worrying and the thinking about just as they did that mm-hmm. for us in childhood. It's such a beautiful, horrible reciprocity. Um, we're glad we're there to do it. We'd rather, I think our mothers and fathers be in our hands in our homes than, you know, than in the hands of strangers or to be alone in this suffering, of course. And boy, is it a a rude awakening, I imagine, when it happens. Um, I'm guessing you had some moments along the way, like your first apartment and the first time your car broke down or the first time, you know, you lost a job. I don't know what your life has been like, but I'm I'm imagining there were moments along the way of a true, you know, adulting moments where you might not have put a pin in it and realized it at the time, like, Oh, wow, I'm adulting. Um, but somebody else looking at your life could have said, yep, 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 yep. You are. Um, I would say now you've moved really from adult to elder, you know, you are right. I know it's weird. (laughs) It is weird. Um, and yet it is life, right? We are mortal. And we go from the incapacity of infancy often to an incapacity in our elderly years, unless we die suddenly, often we have years toward the end where we are less capable. And once again, held by, you know, the hand of metaphorically and physically, those who are more capable. And so I define adulting as these sweet set of decades, we hope where we're healthy and well, where we know ourselves, we know what we want. We're giving ourselves permission to be that self and go grab that life. You know, I've done so much work to know and love and accept myself as a black American, given what America taught me, I should feel about myself. I finally undone all of that. And my prayer now, and I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. My ask of the universe is now that I have arrived at this place of self-love and the journey of learning and growing and, you know, how can I continue to develop in the ways that I want to, I just ask the universe, please let me live for a long time now that I have arrived in this place of self-love. And also Ram Das comes to mind. I don't know if you're interested in his work at all, but I quote him at the start of chapter 12, unleash your superpowers, kindness, mindfulness, and gratitude. I quote him saying, we're all just walking each other home. And that's the image I got when you described how your mother had moved in with you or you with her four years ago with the diagnosis of her dementia. You know, she walked you home as a kid, as a little kid. And now you're walking her home. Oh my God. It's um, sad and it's real and it's raw and it's true. And um, none of us wants to be alone wherever we're journeying particularly when things are tough. 
And, you know, the greatest thing we can do in life, I think, is to show up for another human in need. I'm now losing it, falling apart. Your listeners are like, what's wrong with this lady? But, you know, <laughs> folks, I'm just talking about the, the, what I call the juice and dirt of humans. This is, you know, the juice and dirt of our experience. And we need to have more conversations that, that get to these truths, I think. And I, I want to, I want you to know, I, I, I receive your, your emotion and your compassion and, and I appreciate it. I also want, you know, you and my listeners to know that while yes, it has been tragic and it's, it's been a very hard journey and, and the, the, the pandemic, the quarantine really kind of exacerbated what was already a very difficult journey. It's also, and this sounds so cliche, but it's true. I, f- I feel like I've become, I don't even want to say just stronger or more of an adult. I've become more human, if that makes sense. I mean, I, I've, I've, re- I've found resources in myself and I have found parts of myself, develop parts of myself um, that I didn't know before. I've become more compassionate. Um, and so in some ways, it's not that I wish anyone else would would have to endure this circumstance, but gosh, I do hope others have the kind of life that allows them to, to evolve right. in the ways that I've been able to, to evolve. Cause I, I don't, I don't feel worse for having gone through this. Yep. I hear that. I'm, I'm, I can see it in your face and cause I have the privilege of seeing you while we have this conversation and I'm glad you've articulated it. Cause I think you've just nailed it. Like this is what life actually is. We have the, the chance to evolve and grow in response to the things we encounter and endure. And if that's not living, I don't know what is. Well, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I want to remind my listeners that I'm talking to Julie Lithcott-Haynes about her book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. And Julie, please uh, let me know when you your memoir comes out with your mother. I think that's a great idea. And I'm so glad you're going to be documenting your experience. Um, We would love to have you back. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And thanks to everyone who's listened. We appreciate you.